All right. Big sweeping reveal here that not a lot of people know about me. Mm-hmm. Uh, like maybe a handful of people, if that. So announcing it here now to the world. My middle name is actually Reynolds. Really? Yeah. Huh. I don't think I knew that. Yeah, I definitely not a lot of people. Not Reynolds. No, but just Reynolds. Close enough. I, hmm. I Americanized. You, huh? Americanized. <laughs> I, I knew you had an R middle initial, yeah. but that's most just you know because of our, our, our mutual theft from Bezos. Yeah. But that's Reynolds. That's I, a good one too, I, though. I, I was just thinking. How come you keep that close to the chest? I don't know. Gro- I mean, growing up, you know, just never heard it or saw it anywhere. So I was like, what is this name? Gotcha. It's a last name, first name kind of thing. Yeah. So I don't. Arthur was already old man enough growing up. That sure. Reynolds seemed like even further back into the timeline. I thought you were Arthur Randy. And the honestly. only thing I knew Reynolds was Riddle's rap. So, I mean, as a kid, you're like, I don't want yeah, to I get it. date that thing. I out. think every fourth time I introduced myself since I was 12 years old, I've had to hear, did you say dolphin? Yeah. No, I'm sorry. I'm from a part of the country where people talk out of the corner of their mouth. <laughs> it's my fault. That's funny. Interesting. Well, thank you for that fun fact. Well, you're yeah. not much of a woodcock, and that's good, because I, well, yeah, thank I, you. I think you would be uh, fun to be around yeah. if you were. <laughs> I, think, I, think, I think all three of us are pretty good about not being too fastidious, and that's, I think, a good quality. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Flexibility is nice. Yeah, a little, little, little bit of adaptability is, goes a long way. So, hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Good Trash Honor Cats. We talk about adaptability and middle names or... The in, Phantom Thread. Or Adaptability. Just, no, Phantom Thread. No definite article. Correct. Yes. Just Phantom Thread. Uh, the Paul Thomas Anderson joint with... Uh, just our, Paul Thomas Anderson. Just Paul... <laughs> I, I thought Daniel Day-Lewis was in it, but now I don't, I'm not sure about anything. No, you said the Paul Thomas Anderson. The Paul Thomas Anderson with the Daniel Day-Lewis. Uh, His friend that is, a, that is actually his legal, legal name. Sir the, the Daniel Day-Lewis. The, we just call him Dan. <laughs> friends, 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 of, friends, of, friends of Dan Lewis, yeah. DDL. Yeah, DDL. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, all the silliness and hilariness, hilarity you're about to endure is an analysis show, not a review show, dealing with that particular film. If you have tuned in for the very first time to this show, though, we want to let you know that we are going to spoil the movie, and that's probably a thing uh, with this particular film, if you haven't caught it for whatever reason, even though it's, what, three or four years old? Yeah, creeping up on yeah, four. 2017. Yep. But um, it has got, um, gets a little twisty. Sure. I would say, yeah, sure. Significantly twisty, yeah. But uh, we'll avoid the spoilers for the first part of the show. So what we'll do is synopsis, which will be spoiler free. We'll do a quick little thumbs up, thumbs down reviews, which will be the gentlest of spoilers like you'd expect from a movie review. And then we'll move into uh, a little exercise called expanding the syllabus, which might involve some spoilers of the film or other films in its orbit. And then finally, all bets are off. All the spoilers come spoiling down as um, spoiling down the plane uh, <laughs> as mm-hmm. we uh, deal with uh, this great film, Phantom Thread. Yeah, we'll so. show you all the secret trinkets sewn into the jacket. Exactly. So, uh, there you go, dear listener. You've been warned. Oh, I'm still Dustin. I'm still Arthur. I'm still Dalton. And now, normally we... D- Dustin, you talked about adaptability, and adaptability here being the premise of the show, because this is not I, uh, typically the movie, sort of movie we talk about. I, I can imagine... It's an Oscar. Was it Oscar-nominated for Best well, Picture? Well, but it's also, director? you know, it's final... Allegedly, final film of a, a you know a sort of a best of their generation actor. So like this is something that could conceivably make its way into a film studies course. Uh, I would think it probably could. Yeah, but we're in a marathon, and our, the favorite thing about marathons is getting to do whatever we want, and that frequently means picking movies we wouldn't normally talk about. And it is a mystery marathon. We don't know what the marathon is. We have to guess it based on what the films are. So we'll get another clue to that at the end of the show, and Arthur reveals to us what number next will be. Okay, can I give you a theory real quick? Okay, a theory already. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one, one movie. Yep. You've got a theory. Yep. 
Okay, next week we're doing Ready Player One, and Arthur is is seeding Easter egg movies. <laughs> he, he's doing some eyebrows at me. <laughs> <laughs> Have I found your game? <laughs> hey, look, I watch a lot of movies. I'm good at I'm good at piecing out plots. Interesting. Um, we'll see what happens at the end of the show, I suppose. Uh, all right. Well, without any further ado, though, I believe it is time for a synopsis. If you're prepared, Doctor Gordon, Doctor Reynolds Gordon. Ooh. The House of Woodcock is the name in fashion, and stern designer Reynolds Woodcock has very precise taste and is only reined in by his sister Cyril. While on vacation, Reynolds meets his next muse and lover, Alma, but Alma is more headstrong than Reynolds' former ladies, and a threatening power battle begins to unfurl in the House of Woodcock. And this is where I'm going to uh, steal the show from you. Okay. Uh, because I am, I, I have seen this several times, uh, but you were both first-time watchers of Phantom Thread. Correct. Only Paul Thomas Anderson movie I had not seen. So uh, I'm going to throw... Have you oh. seen Henry? Or Heart 8? I have seen Heart 8. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's the one is, most people haven't seen. I, I haven't seen many of his movies, actually. I, I've seen this, Punch Drunk, and maybe one other. Magnolia? Nope. Nope. Uh, Master? Nope. Inherent Vice. Oh, I have not seen no. The Master. I, I have missed one. I, I need to re... I, are those the only two I've seen? I'm basically, re- I'm need to research re- this I need quick. to rewatch everything after There Will Be Blood, probably. There Will Be Blood so good. I've seen a lot, yeah. Uh, I really like Inherent Vice a lot. I actually think it's... I know I've it's, thought about programming it at some point. Uh, yeah, I know it's kind of the, the dark core. Uh, film in his his, his uh, filmography. I was gonna say oeuvre and like make it like I don't know how to say it. It's, <laughs> it's a dumb joke. We've done it a lot. Yeah, I've only uh, seen the two. Yeah, really. That's see, that's interesting to me. Yeah, I don't know. I just I haven't got around to the others. Yeah, it, it's weird. Like after there will be blood, there is like a noticeable pivot, right? To like kind of becoming a different sort of filmmaker. I feel like you know, yeah. there's a consistency of. Of, you know, theme and stuff in there, right? But it, it is interesting that he sort of hard pivots towards period pieces. Yeah. Uh, I mean, all, exclusively his last five films. Yeah. Right? At, at, after doing only, like, sort of modern era movies. Uh, seems like the internet makes it hard. I guess Boogie Nights is a period piece, too, though. Yeah. yeah. Correct. So, yeah. I don't know. Interesting career. Fair enough. Well, all right. Well, Dustin, first time watch of the show, of the movie. What do you think of Phantom Thread? Okay, I dig it a lot, uh, is really what I want to say. And I, I mean, I only saw it the one time, and that was the first time watching it. And honestly, this is one of those movies where I feel like I need to watch it again. Daniel Day-Lewis' performance is amazing. Daniel Day-Lewis, as an actor, I mean, I'm going to say something really shocking. He's really incredible, because he is he really does morph into these different characters in a way that is just shocking. And... He does it again. And so I love that. Uh, I love Cyril. I love the performance of Cyril. I got strong Lilith from Frasier vibes off of her. <laughs> As a, I actually had to look it up on IMDb. I'm like, I know that's not the same actress, yeah. but I was not, I was really not sure. Um, yeah, I haven't seen a ton this of This is work. Leslie Manville yeah. as Cyril. <laughs> Leslie Manville is very prolific. She's she's great. Uh, and she's very, very good in her role here. Uh, Alma's great. Uh, I love... Yeah, dude, Vicky Creeps is so good. Yeah. yeah. It's, I can't even. Like, the two of them just... I mean, they keep up. Right. Like, Absolutely. That's all there is yeah, to they, it. They, they go toe-to-toe with Daniel Day-Lewis, and um, they are punching way above their weight and are uh, really able to do so quite uh, effectively. Uh, it's a movie about costumes, so guess what? Costume design, on point. Mm-hmm. Very on point. Musical choices, camera movement choices, the use of stairs and a handheld camera going up and down the stairs. All of that is great. Uh, the way in which the storytelling is weirdly elliptical and yet also... Um, 
I don't know, it feels almost like a detective film at times. Mm. Uh, the way in which uh, they're just working the, the bits of narration together as you're watching Alma telling the story by a fireside. And I expect it, it creates all of these different kinds of expectations. We've talked about this before, about your plausible hypotheses that David Boardwell says we all do when we watch a film. It creates all of that without being a cheat, without lying to us, or providing red herrings. It, it 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 does what it does to get to the twist. And I, I think that isn't a major part of it, because a lot of times twist movies don't work, uh, because that's all they are. And this is not that. This is a twist movie I think that really does deeply work, because we're looking at a psychological character study, and we're looking at a character telling part of that story. But the narration withholding the bits it was holding is just keeping us up with things that are really, truly plausible without, again, being too cheeky about hiding this piece of information sure. or, you know, well, what the cat saw when, uh, when, the, when the killer came in or whatever. It, <laughs> silly kind of things like that. It, it, it works. And uh, so I'm, I'm a big fan, is what I want to say. A, a pretty big fan. So uh, with that, I guess I'll go into Dalton, the other uh, Virgin viewer. Yeah. Uh, well, look, uh, I spent the better part of the week after we last recorded thinking about uh, Barb and Star and feeling like we'd given it a short shrift because they, of course, you know, as soon as we stopped recording going, oh, it's hard to talk about comedies, you know, I immediately thought of a bunch of shit we should have talked about. Uh, so I'm going to probably bring it up more than is necessary for the next few weeks, but I think it's it's apt here because as much as that is a study of, like, healthy relationships, <laughs> this is so much a study of dysfunctional. I won't say unhealthy, uh, although I think that argument could be reasonably made. Uh, but at the very least, it's exceptionally dysfunctional. We'll get there. We'll get there. Uh, I think... It, it de- well, okay, that depends... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's complex. Right? And that's, I think, uh, t- as you were saying, Dustin, that's sort of the fun of this movie, is it? it is a, you know very much a psychological character study, but it also is a study of a relationship uh, and the study of a family. Um, I don't ever... Do we ever get within the text confirmation that Cyril's his sister. He just always calls her his old so-and-so. But, like, I know, you know, PTA talks about the movie and calls her his his sister. And well, like, she wouldn't help with mom's dress because she's afraid she'd never marry. That's right. right. They make references. Okay. So that there we go. But, yeah, it's, it's late in the film. I mean, I feel like one of the strengths, though, of the movie, the reason I brought it up, it's immediately clear that that's who Cyril is. And the movie doesn't need to tell us that. It just shows us and i mean i know that it's easy to go show don't tell in movies but that's how you do it like it you either do it or you don't do it and somehow this movie figures it out like every step of the way it doesn't need to tell you things about this relationship because it just lets you watch the relationship unfold starting with his last breakup and as far as we can tell every breakup uh reynolds woodcock has ever done has been through his big sister which is some <laughs> real fifth grader shit right uh i don't know makes you think about the, the way people were in the 1950 uh <laughs> you know just a totally different type of human being existing uh I, your mileage is gonna vary on this movie I, I think it's it's something that is very easy to get swept up in Right, but I can definitely see somebody not responding to this movie. And, like, sure. that's mm-hmm. Reynolds Woodcock is a unlikable person. Thoroughly. Daniel Day-Lewis is very good and, like, finds the humanity and charm in this guy, but he does not pull any punches on, like, what a turd he is. Mm-hmm. And I think that could be very off-putting, mm-hmm. right? And I, I think just kind of thinking about this movie and getting ready for this this episode and you know, doing research and stuff, I just started realizing how much of uh, P.T. Anderson's filmography is 
made up of just these really prickly men, right? <clears throat> Dudes who have, you know, not to armchair analyze fictional characters, but like seemingly some some personality issues um, or, or, you know, potential, you know, mental health diagnoses that are not being talked about. And Reynolds definitely fits in that category, right? Like it's, it is always unclear whether or not he is just the most particular prick in the entire world or if he might actually be like neurodivergent in some way. And And I think the movie is smart to not like, really worry about that too much but it is it changes the way you think about Reynolds because his behavior is so pathological it does start to, you you can see why all Vicky Creeps character Alma is is drawn to this guy even though he very quickly becomes like a jerk like it, it there's a very short honeymoon period and like even in that first date the first date is like <laughs> is, yeah I'm gonna take your dress measurements and yeah my sister's gonna comment on like you smell you smelling like the restaurant yeah. And yeah, the size of your breasts. Yeah, and he, and you're, I'm going to make you feel weird about it, even though I'm trying to pay you a compliment. Uh, it's it's just yeah, it's a whole. I'm, I'm going to neg you the whole evening, and my sister's going to take notes on it and tell you how you did. It's a weird relationship going on because it is very much a family. It is a three person relationship, and I, you know the the ways status changes throughout this movie is, is really it's bread and butter, right? Uh, it's it's too loud butter at breakfast is. The shifting dynamic of who likes who, who doesn't like who, who assumes what about who, that, you know, that as soon as the doctor starts calling uh, Alma Mrs. Woodcock, she, boom, that's it. She's like, hell yeah, I, yeah, you're darn right I am. Uh, you don't need her and Cyril just, like, trying to jump in and get each other's uh, line, I guess, with the doctor is is really funny. Um, I'm excited to, to dig more into this. I do just want to say before we part, uh, it's fun for me. Um to think about, you know, this movie, its creation, right? It's Genesis. Uh, Anderson talks about, uh, in an interview he did for, I think it was a DGA's podcast, uh, and Ryan uh, Johnson was interviewing him, and he said, you know, one of the jumping off points for this movie was his his spouse, uh, SNL uh, alum and uh, truly once-in-a-generation talent, Maya Rudolph, uh, which is, it's just, one, number one, that's fun to think about, but two... The genesis of this movie was uh, him being sick and her like taking care of him and like looking at him like uh, with love that he hadn't, uh, as he tells it, that he hadn't felt in a long time. And boy, it sure makes you wonder how much uh, when Reynolds Woodcock is like Paul Thomas Anderson. And uh, I don't know. It's, it's just fun to picture this movie, but swap everybody out for the person that they presumably are, are being written as. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, just just throw Maya Rudolph in there as Alma. Throw, throw PT in there as Reynolds. It's it's just a fun mental swap to play. But Arthur, great pick. Uh, a, a weird pick for this show, but I can see why you've, you've returned to this movie so many times. It really is just... There's a lot there, man. I, we're, and there's we're not even going to scratch the surface today. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I, I absolutely do adore it. I, I've seen it probably three, four times now. Um, I think I saw it a couple times in theaters, if I remember correctly. But um, I, 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 you know, you've already said everything about it—the acting, the performances, all that—is obviously. I, I think the technical stuff, even the sound design, uh, when they're you know sewing that hand stitch, the the way it captures that thread, uh, needle puncturing the, the heavy cloth. Mm. I think those little details are incredible. Uh, there's that great bit. There's a hard close up on somebody's hand. I don't know if it is actually. Daniel Days, and it could be, but it's very calloused, and and the skin is torn where he's punctured himself many times with a needle, and you can tell. And those little details are, are really cool. I, I like that attention there. That that's really admirable in what this film is capturing. And I also think it's just deadly funny. I I think it is just so so dryly, bitingly funny. Um, 
just from from the from the get go from the the. The raid to get the dress back is such a great moment. Yeah, uh, if, if you don't bring me the dress, I'll take it off myself. Alma, <laughs> go yeah. get the dress. Like it's yeah. so yeah, dude. <laughs> it's such a funny moment. Like there's some straight up like weird like, uh, like screwball comedy yeah. moments. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I appreciate those things. The you know, I it's, it's breakfast. I I can't stand confrontation in the morning. That stuff <laughs> yeah. is so good. Yeah. Uh, I, I think it's just drastically funny uh, i i love it so much uh, it's got this hitchcockian dna it you know reminds me so much of rebecca in a way uh there's this kind of gothicness to it this this kind of underlying ghost story about it uh which i think is really interesting as well and what the past is and so i i appreciate all that and uh, i i really don't know why i haven't really went and sat down with the rest of pta stuff other than usually they are all about two and a half hours or longer mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um so there's that kind of time investment that scares me away sometimes but I think this movie is just top notch from start to finish. Uh, just from directing to cinematography, it's gorgeous. Uh, you know everything about it, the way it's uh, set design, production design is great. So yeah, I, I'm a big fan. That's why I'm, I was really happy that you, neither of you had seen it. I think that makes it a lot of fun to kind of go into, especially where it goes narratively. Uh, and so uh, yeah, I'm glad we got to talk about it. Excellent, excellent. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. It is a lot of fun, and our biases are generally pro. Now we're going to move on to the part of the show where we do this little mental exercise in which we create a class called Expanding the Phyllis, uh, Expanding the Syllabus. I think I was going to say film syllabus at the same expanding time. Expanding the Phyllibus. The Expanding the Phyllibuster. Um, Dalton. <laughs> <laughs> Can you explain uh-huh. that? Can I expand, explain Expanding the Phyllibuster? <laughs> Dalton I don't already think... filibusters every week. There and there you have it. Uh, you shouldn't allow the filibuster because then dip show don't sh- tell. Dipshits like me can yeah show up and tell for hours and hours. I'm showing currently and telling, which is sort of a weird Cardinal paradox. Sin. Yeah. Uh, what I will be doing is explaining expanding the syllabus. Expanding the syllabus is a thought exercise where Got we, it. the three assembled dum dums, uh, build a, a film syllabus around our our, our week. Uh, what would you call it? The feature of the week. Yeah. Uh, we, we, we spin that out. That into, there movie we watch. <laughs> there, you know, we take the Dern Picture Show, and we uh, we build us a learning course around it, and we, we try to talk smart about normally movies you wouldn't talk smart about, but this week, we're talking about a smart movie, so the stakes are higher. <laughs> God, it went country, then Owen Wilson somehow in all that. That was kind of fantastic. Wow. Yeah, yeah I've seen that's growing up around uh, Oaky Dirt Farmers and <laughs> Uh, a California Army brat. Oh, yeah, that's so good. That's how you end up sounding like that. <laughs> you guys are the worst. Arthur, tell us about your syllabus, please. I, will, I meant to mention this earlier because uh, Dalton was talking about that stand-in of, of PTA and Maya Rudolph. Uh, there's a fun anecdote. I, I told this to Dustin the other day. I don't know if Dalton's heard this before. Uh, but uh, uh, legend has it that when uh, Christopher Nolan took the family to see this movie, uh, afterwards the children begin referring to him as Woodcock. That is hilarious and is makes... Funny. A lot of sense. Yeah, it's a, it's a good bit of trivia. Uh, so I really wanted to kind of focus in on uh, the idea of the method actor. I think we've already talked about Daniel Day-Lewis and his kind of legacy of, of what he leaves uh, if this is the last time we see him on, on screen. And so, I, you know, he is kind of our last, I think, true method actor that, that really has... I think is doing something lived up to that actual yeah. method he, he's in doing, a lot of ways. He's doing something other than just being cold that's and it. eating an elk heart. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 he's yeah. learning how to make dresses. Yes, yeah, yeah, and that's the thing. You know, this, this he uh, had spent several months uh, in advance getting to know uh, Leslie Manville. They spent time 
becoming friends and building a relationship before production. Mm-hmm. Uh, he does, you know, learn how you know this whole sewing thing works and does all the research. Uh, and there are plenty of actors who call themselves method today that aren't really method that Dalton's alluding to. And there's that kind of blurred line of, you know, is a character actor, method actor, or vice versa, and well, you're kind of getting the, into that. Yeah, the lineage is blurry too, right? Yeah. Because it's sort of, Stanislavski or whatever yeah. is one of the founders, um, yeah. but there's like another guy in there, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, so we're going to kind of kick this off going there, uh, and, and we are going to talk about Konstantin Stanislavski, uh, and the, the three kind of core texts there are an actor prepares, building a character, and creating a role. Uh, those three texts kind of lay the groundwork for what becomes the school of method, uh, which kind of goes on to its next stance, and you're probably talking about Lee Strasberg. Yep, thank and you. And Stella Adler uh, and their school of method, yep. and uh, obviously the most notable uh, person to kind of come through there is Marlon Brando. Uh, so I think we start this course, we got to talk about Brando. Uh, we got to talk about Eli Kazan. Uh, we're going to talk about On the Waterfront. Of course. Uh, and, and that's kind of the... We could also probably do uh, Streetcar Named Desire, uh, but I think On the Waterfront is kind of the core, the text to look at here where uh, Brando kind of puts forth the philosophy of what would I do? What would this person do? How mm-hmm. would they really react? And kind of brings that kind of realism to to the forefront of, of acting. You know, acting is has this long background in from theater, obviously, coming out in the early days. Uh, Stanislavski's writing these books in the 30s, so prior to that, you know, we've got this heavy DNA of theatrical acting. You watch these early Hollywood films, and people are tumblers, and they're, they've been on stage, and guys like Charles Lawton. And, uh, they're vaudeville crossovers. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the, the Marx Brothers especially. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so this is kind of a more natural, realistic approach, or is it supposed to be, or attempts to be. Uh, so I think that's where we go first is Brando. We want to talk about on the waterfront. Uh, and, and there I think we're going to kind of cross over and move into the rise of the new Hollywood and talk more about that kind of gritty realism. And we're going to really talk about that school uh, kind of around Scorsese and those other directors. We're going to talk Harvey Keitel. We're going to talk Pacino. We're going to talk Dustin Hoffman. Uh, we're going to talk Michael Caine. Uh, and we're obviously going to talk about Robert De Niro. Of course. Uh, and then so for that, we're going to talk about Raging Bull. We're going to talk Jake LaMotta. Uh, we're going to talk about you know, actors who have to put on weight or lose weight for roles. And what does that look like? And how does that affect them? And is, you know, how much of that is method or is, you know, and especially in a modern era, we'll talk about this more a little later in the course, but doing that as kind of an Oscar bait award bait type move, like, Oh, I went through this big physical transformation. Give me the statue. Uh, I think that's a very uh, important conversation to have in context with the rest of this as well. Totally. Uh, I want to move into the next generation is what I'm calling it, kind of that 80s, 90s period. I want to talk about Nicolas Cage. Uh, I want to talk about Adrian Brody. Uh, looking at the pianist, you know, Adrian Brody uh, kind of removed himself from society, lost weight for that role. I want to talk about Hilary Swank, and we're going to watch Boys Don't Cry, uh, her performance him. there. Uh, and from that, I want to move into the now is what I'm calling it. We're going to talk about Christian Bale. We're going to talk Tom Hardy. Uh, we'll talk Heath Ledger, or I will, we're going to watch The Dark Knight, obviously, uh, and kind of look at that that discourse around his death, what led into that, and all the kind of, you know, how much of that was just personal, how much of that was method, you know, where those lines blur. But, Christian Bale's the other one, I where's think. Where's the cultural line blur, right? Like, regardless yeah. of, like, what actually happened, the myth sort of does yeah. slowly <laughs> creep up over yeah. the real story. Print the legend. Bingo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and and Christian Bale's kind of that throwback, I think, to De Niro, right? Mm-hmm. Christian Bale's constantly putting himself through this, you know, losing 80 pounds, gaining 50 muscle, losing 70 or whatever. He, Turning you know, himself that, into Dick Cheney, yeah, being yelled at by his doctor. Wild thing he does uh, that can't be good for his heart no, in God, any no. way. 
Uh, but he still feels like kind of the natural predecessor of a De Niro. Uh, then we're also going to talk about Joaquin Phoenix. Uh, we're going to talk about Walk the Line. Uh, but he's he's kind of also got that mystique, right? Uh, similar as uh, Ledger. Uh, and then I want to talk about the conflict. And I want to talk about those guys who are, quote-unquote, method actors who are just maybe jerks. They're just jerks. who. Happen. I mean, you could circle back to Brando for yeah. Last Tango, yeah. right? But yeah, the, the covering up bad behavior yeah. with calling it method acting. Yeah. Uh, so we are going to talk a little bit about Ed Norton. Uh, we're going to talk about Jared Leto, obviously. We're going to watch, the sui- or we're going to watch Suicide Squad, no article, mm-hmm. uh, from 2016. <laughs> and his approach to that and the problematic nature of that. Uh, and to Dalton's point, yeah, there were a couple of quotes I saw, you know, uh, Charles Lawton said a, a method actor gives you a picture, a, a real actor gives you an oil painting, right? Or, uh, yeah. and Hitchcock talks about his problems, uh, with, uh, I can't remember who it was. Uh, somebody, and I confess, I believe, uh, I can't remember who it is. Well, while you're pulling that, yeah. I'll tell the, the Dustin Hoffman, Lawrence Olivier story, uh, yeah. from Marathon Man. Mm-hmm. You know, they're shooting this scene where Hoffman's character is supposed to have been, you know, it's late in the movie, so he's been up for two days running from, you know, Nazi war criminals or whatever. So he shows up to set, he's been doing coke for, you know, a weekend or whatever, <laughs> and hasn't shaved, he's been yelling at his, uh, hotel room wall to be raspy. And he's talking to Olivier about all this prep, and he's like, "You could call, you could do acting, dear boy. <laughs> you could just perform, you know. <laughs> yeah, you could just uh, pretend, think, darling. Yeah. yeah, that's sort of the uh, what you were getting at. There, there is a whole litany of directors and actors, uh, and some of the actors you've listed would probably count themselves. I, I can very much see uh, Day Lewis like not appreciating these other quote unquote methods and going, "What do you?" No, like, I just don't like rehearsals because I don't want to blow all the good takes. Like, what are you doing? Yeah. Uh, But, uh, yeah, Hitchcock uh, had issues, uh, I think, both with Montgomery Clift on I Confess and then later with Paul Newman and Torn Curtain. Yeah, it checks Uh, out. And he kind of has quotes, you know, of the the nature, the kind of attitude and and ego, I think, that goes along with some of these kind of quote-unquote method actors who, who... really try to you know if they are trying to get in character and that character is mean or rude or whatever and the problems that could cause onset and the kind of atmosphere and, and confrontational and, and uh problematic nature it can cause on set so i think that's where i'd go with this though and, and really just diving into that school of, of acting and method acting in, in general so just to just just for toxie's sake um, because you know you're talking about this as a course. Would this be a module on method acting with a broader course on acting techniques? I think you could. You know, I've done do this like, a few times because I've talked thing, about. You know, I've talked about. Uh, I pitched the prestige character actor, your Brad Pitt, your Gary Oldman's guys, who were obviously household names, but also and, and pretty boys, but they really want to do characters. Celebrity stuff. method. Johnny Depp is yeah, yeah, and that kind of same school. So I think so. Yeah, I think you could do just a course on acting and the different schools and styles and the history, and I think that would be a lot of fun. Uh, the, the character actor themselves. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think that'd be pretty fascinating. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, you just trace the, you know, you trace the early days of cinema and theatrical and vaudeville, like you said, and then into the method, and then the more realistic styles later. And the Cordova's picture personalities probably as a book. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I think that's the thing, right? I didn't get into that, but the movie stars the other thing, right? You, You talk about your. Uh, Clark Gables and Humphrey Bogarts. I mean, they're they've got a persona. That's who they. Play. That's who they are. You right. Know, that's John Wayne. John Wayne. We know what John Wayne does. Uh, Denzel. We would talk to Safehouse. Yeah. I mean, yeah. The, yeah. the modern you know, George Clooney's in that. Same you can school. do both. Yeah. Which is kind of a weird thing. But I mean, just talking about like Strasburg and Adler and and um, the other one Stanislavski. Like that's just a whole. There's there's coaching trees for all three yeah. of those folks, yeah. right? Like I think what's his doodle the the improv guy. Um, 
I can't think of his name. Colin Mockery. No, the guy that he invented the... Drew Carey. No. <laughs> yeah, it's not important. Uh, people are shouting at their, their MP3 player right now, and they know who I'm talking about. But I think he's in that coaching tree. Like, it, it is just sort of a weird lineage. And, you know, people butt heads about, like, the theory on this stuff in ways that I think, yeah, good pick, man. Very cool, very cool. Well, Dalton, what's your syllabus looking like? It's vaguely similar, but, uh, you know, kind of going through a different tract. Um, I, you know, I thought a lot about Daniel Day-Lewis and, and Paul Thomas Anderson, like, both as collaborators and as, you know, people with their, their own individual careers, uh, and sort of both of them gravitating towards towards difficult men. And, you know, so much of the history of American cinema is excusing the bad behavior of uh, guys who somebody called a genius, right? And it's... It's hard not to think about that, and so I, I didn't want to totally dive into that sort of, you know, framework, though, for a class. So we, we, this is just going to be a sort of broad, uh, maybe intro to cinema studies class, um, but we are going to focus on how every movie is by a filmmaker, and I know that that sounds stupid and obvious, but it's worth mentioning because I think more movies than you would think are about filmmaking, because obviously people write and direct about what they know, and all these guys know is sitting at their computer banging out screenplays and then being on phone calls with producers and asking their DP, what do you think is a light ride or do we need to wait? Do we need to call an early lunch? Like it's like how many novels are about frustrated writers? Yeah. Bingo. Yeah. And Steve, just look at Stephen King's entire, uh, you know, oeuvre. That's uh, what I, I probably half of it's about writers. There's a lot of it. So we'll be looking at, you know, uh, things where the metaphor is sort of out there and obvious uh, uh, inception, uh, mother, Parasite, uh, There Will Be Blood, Ratatouille, Birdman, um, Ghost Story. These are the ones that I, you know, a lot of contemporary ones. I was actually hoping maybe one or two of you, as I'm talking about this, feel free to, you know, jump in with some some sort of older examples. But I think all of those, all of those involve an artist in some capacity that feels like a filmmaker insert, right? And if there isn't a direct one-to-one filmmaker insert, there is at the very least a a sort of specific mirroring of the filmmaking process going on and you know the inception as being about movie making that's kind of well trod uh parasite right that's sort of right there in the text they're acting performing you know scenes together i guess you get reservoir dogs in here uh you know if you want to talk about uh the, the sort of the the undercover cop uh se- segment of that that movie i think that part kind of rolls into this nicely one film I think of off the top of my head, it, I forget the title of the actual short. It's in that collection from Akira Kurosawa Dreams, the mm-hmm. Vincent Van Gogh piece, where Vincent Van Gogh is played by Martin Scorsese, <laughs> directed by Akira Kurosawa, and uh, talks a lot about making art and seeing the world. So I think that would be pretty on the nose as an example. Well, and a lot of these are, right? Like, Ghost Story has this whole monologue right towards the middle point of the film where a dude like explicitly talks about the nature of making stuff, knowing the limits of your own mortality, knowing the limits of any painting, like nothing this will survive forever. So we, what, why do we do what we do? We do it because that's what we do. And like, that, that is what it is. And I, you know, I think that that, that outlook is interesting and it is probably going to kind of help frame this class. Cause it's not necessarily like an intellectual attack on filmmakers, but it is appreciating that filmmakers are just regular schmoes like anybody else. Uh, and, and sort of looking at the work, to try to find the shortcomings of that limited worldview, right? And, you know, if you if filmmakers worth their salt, they're going to do a lot of research, they're going to do their best to bring truth uh, and something resembling, you know, the accuracy or the aesthetic truth that, you know, we talk about with Herzog, that concept Herzog mentions that we talk about all the time. Um, 
so again, it's it's kind of why I've got this run of movies that are all kind of like capital A auteur films, but I think they all are offering us something different, right? Like Mother giving you insight to Aronofsky and <laughs> Jennifer Lawrence's relationship and his and Rachel Weisz's relationship. That's a totally different thing than Parasite being a movie about, uh, you know, trying to get money from rich people so you can make movies. Th- these are all different things, but in, like Ratatouille is a different movie uh, than all these other things, right? Where it's just about how do you stay passionate and how do, how can your love of a thing ruin it for you sometimes? Uh, you know, these, these are all just different ways to look at this, this same issue. And I, I definitely would pull this YouTube essay that kind of got me started. When I was doing my research, I stumbled across this early on. It's a video essay by it from uh, Now You See It. Uh, is the channel, then they do a lot of just kind of like, look, look the magic tricks of movies, and uh, pulled a couple of disparate films, mostly contemporaries, and, and talked about how even, like, I think he, he specifically cited Moonlight and um, Nomadland as, as films that he thought, like, were pretty far afield of that, and there was a, but there was even there an end yet to it. But I think he, he highlighted those films just because they are very much about ordinary people living their lives and less about, you know, creative people within the text of the film and again i think that is sort of the key thing here is how many movies do become about creating something whether it is again a film or not whether it's you know and i think with phantom thread uh, specifically and this is kind of where i'll put a bow on this i, I think the film is so rich be- by design right it is about hiding things and playing sight which is movie making like th- that's the whole thing that's Reynolds Woodcock's whole deal as a human being is um, hiding how he feels in plain sight, hiding um, his craft in plain sight, you know, all, all these sort of like tiny little details that are just for him and nobody else. You know, that sort of is the deal that so much of movie making is just people sort of shitting their diary out on to the, the multiplex and hoping nobody notices. Uh, and of course, how can you not notice after you watch long enough? But, uh, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean any of these people are any smarter or less smart than, you know, than uh, the statues on their mantelpiece would give them credit. It's just worth considering, you know, what, what are the limits of storytelling? You know, when we try to take any given story, any given person and squeeze it into a narrative, what gets left out of the picture? In the case of Phantom Thread, it's a lot of Cyril and Alma probably. And, you know, examining who gets left out and why, I think, is going to be really, really important for probably the end of this class, right? Just kind of putting a button on everything. Very cool. Very cool. Thank you for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Now, you, of course, Dustin, uh, would have a lot of good articles about tour theory. I'm sure you could and probably might mention later as we get into the latter part of the show. Probably so. Yeah, we, we can probably talk about Sarah's notes on the auteur, etc. Um, that's a good place to start, dear listener, if you're looking for some uh, introductory uh, stuff. Sarah's notes on the auteur theory. Um, I had two classes that I thought about pretty hard. Okay. And I floated the first idea by Arthur, and it did sound like fun, but I don't know if I'd actually want to do it. So I just want to just throw this as an idea in terms of an actor study, uh, or, car- or uh, star study kind of course, where you talk about the the heel turn in acting, uh, playing oh, yeah. against type. You know, because uh, Vertigo is going to end up being one of my pairs for my actual course. Okay. And I was thinking about Jimmy Stewart, who is evil and messed up in Vertigo. But this is also Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. And I thought, you know, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington playing that role in Vertigo is a thing. And Daniel Day-Lewis, though he has played other pretty vicious characters before he plays uh, Reynolds Woodcock, uh, case in point, There Will Be Blood, uh, but 
he starts out as the last Mohicans guy. He starts, you know, and, and comes to a place as, uh, you know, I mean, my left foot, a lot of people saw, but it's not. Well, even before I was, there's one I found out about where he plays some racist South African and like a movie with, um, Ben Kingsley that I've oh, never yeah. heard of. It's like one of his first things, but you're right. Like uh, he's handsome. My, my age left of innocence. foot, um, yeah. age of innocence. Uh, what's the, the, the IRA boxer one. The boxer. It's just the boxer. Right. Yeah. He's got a couple of wrongfully imprisoned dude movies. Right. Yeah. So yeah, a lot of, uh, the crucible. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, although, I mean, you know, he's playing the, the, the evil preacher or whatever. No, nah, he's one of the ones that gets hanged. Oh, is he one of the gets hanged? Okay. Yeah, he's Proctor John. Oh, is he, is he Proctor John? Okay. Yeah. I, I, I just assumed. He he was the other guy. I know, right? Yeah. No, earlier in his career, his career is so weird. It too. is strange. Okay, well, that's interesting to know. But I, I, but that turn, you know, looking at a contrast between, say, Abraham Lincoln and Lincoln mm-hmm. versus Reynolds Woodcock would be interesting there. Versus Plainview, and, and then I was thinking, yeah, Daniel Plainview from uh, There Will Be Blood, and then I was just thinking about how different directors take this, you know, and how you see a pattern of that because we saw, you know. Uh, Paul Thomas Anderson do this with this actor, Daniel Day-Lewis, but also we can think about characters against type with him with uh, Tom Cruise in Magnolia or uh, Adam Sandler in Punch Drunk Love. Of course. And then going back to Hitchcock, we can think about Sean Connery and Torrin Curtin. Also, uh, Philip Car- Seymour Hoffman in The Master, Phillips, a yeah. guy that like played low status his entire life, gets to be LRH, a, you know, a character who refused to be low status in any room. Right. Uh, and so there were some thoughts about that. Denzel's, you know, sort of heel turn between, you know, his earlier career and uh, Training, Training Day. Day. The, yeah, <laughs> I know. Right. Of all the movies <laughs> that just Amelia had a little bit of a brain bubble there. Uh, but the gas passed. So we're out now. Uh, but I, I thought about that for a while and I don't know quite how that would work but it is kind of an interesting thought experiment uh to sort of begin teasing out and that's why i'm wasting minutes on the podcast to talk about it before i talk about what i really want to talk about which <laughs> i am we need a filibuster rule um uh, what we what, what i want to talk about are these makeover movies these makeover control metaphor yeah, movies, these pygmalion stories which is what vertigo is which is what phantom thread is and uh, very much what that obscure object of desire by Louis Bunuel is as well. Uh, I, there's a film that I did not watch that Arthur recommended to me called Phoenix. It's a 2014 German thriller about a uh, Holocaust survivor going back to Berlin to find her husband. And she's been shot in the face and she has to have plastic surgery to reconstruct her face. And she's not quite herself and trying to sort of match more of those expectations and not having seen the film I don't know a lot about it but I understand that it very much fits in with that vertigo uh phantom thread uh, uh obscure object of desire kind of Venn diagram and, and then I thought about American Mary quite a bit as a horror film but also that same way in which body modification and well and frankly kink uh plays sure. a role because I think kink uh, ought to play a role in our discussion of phantom thread uh, uh you think <laughs> and uh <laughs> cuz obviously so that would be a module in a course I would not know where to drop it you could do general film studies. I think in terms of reading, we'd look at Laura Mulvey's Visual Pleasures and Narrative Cinema and think about the gaze. I mean, you just go back to the start of drama and, like, art. Yeah. <laughs> Truly, you really can. And so those, I think, would be some fun places to go and uh, interesting exploration. And, and, and in terms of the makeover as part of it, we can even talk about just the trope in the romantic comedy, right? Nerdy girl loses her glasses, takes down the bun, and all of a sudden, oh, you're beautiful, right? <laughs> and so what's that all about no, as well? Not Janie Briggs. She's got glasses <laughs> and a ponytail. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that conversation. So there you go, dear listener. Your syllabus just got longer. But now, I believe it's time to get down to business. 
fun fact I just learned. Uh, Daniel Day-Lewis, uh, you know who his father-in-law is? Yes, his father-in-law is uh, the guy that wrote the Crucible, Arthur Miller. Arthur Miller. Oh, his father-in-law is uh, yeah. Arthur. His father-in-law is Arthur Miller. Yeah. Yes. Wow. Uh, he he met Arthur Miller's daughter while doing background on the Crucible, and he later starred in a movie uh, that she wrote uh, about uh, some Scottish guy who is the last holdout on a commune that didn't work out. That's wild. Isn't that wild? That is yeah. crazy. So this is Arthur Miller's daughter, not from Marilyn Monroe. I don't know who her mom is. I don't think it's Marilyn. I didn't, I, I didn't know Arthur Miller and Marilyn Monroe had a child together. I don't think... Well, I know they were married. I don't know if they were... I don't think they did. I don't know no. the kids. I don't... Uh, let me see. She's Marilyn not, I mean, she's Day-Lewis's age. I mean, they're, yeah, they're, they're yeah, about the same age. Yeah. So, I don't, I don't know. I don't know who her mom is. Isn't that wild? Okay, sorry. It, it is wild, though, right? Yeah, it's it's, it's interesting. Um, yeah. I guess since we're talking about Day-Lewis's personal life... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Arthur. <laughs> tell us, tell us. Rebecca Miller. Uh-huh. Rebecca Augusta Miller... Lady Day Lewis. Nice. Love it. Love it. That's that good. Is great. Uh this is a good place to stop. You know, we we've talked about method a lot already, so we don't kind of need to do any like preamble or intro on that. But I think we can talk about like what sets Day Lewis apart. Why is he other than getting, you know, two uh Os- best actor Oscars in non consecutive decades and then three overall, like other than that shit, other than the hardware. What is it that sets him apart? Is it the mystique? Is it the saying, I'm just a dude, and does, I need to keep as much space between you and I as possible so you can remember or not realize that I'm just a dude? Uh, you know, whatever whatever his reasoning behind that, right? Whether it's just wanting yeah. privacy or not wanting his craft interrupted, yeah. he eschews the public eye, and that definitely seems to be part of the chemistry. I, th- I think the there's alchemy. also the idea, and you kind of hinted at this earlier, but I think there's the idea that if you have to come out in the press and say, oh, I'm a method actor... You're probably not. Um, you know what I mean. You're yeah. totally right. You're, yeah. you, you know, you're, you're trying to set yourself. You're trying to establish yourself as something of a, a you know a player in on the on the set. But. but you know how your real method actor is. Your movie boxing coach says, you know, take out the top ten guys in the UK. He could go go pound for pound with everybody else. Yeah. Wow. That's a compliment, dude, mm-hmm. for your trainer, the guy who's like probably doesn't really want to be with you anyway because it means he's not getting to train real fighters uh, to come away from it going begrudgingly. Damn, yeah. like <laughs> you learned to box for real, man. So I think there's some, but I think you're right. I think that there is that kind of when he's not making a film, he's just gone. He was like a, he went to become a cobbler, right? Yeah, making he, he shoes. lives in Italy. Yeah. That's his deal. That's his thing. Yeah. Oh, and then he's going to go shoot a movie. And then go back to making shoes. Like I don't know. I, I think there is something to that that separate that very hard separation, while not on a project, versus you know while on a project just being fully immersed in it in a non. I don't know, anarchic way. Yeah, almost. you're you're hinting at something that I think seems like. Uh, invaluable to this process, which is if you're going that hard, you do need to reset, right? Like you can't just. Roll on from project to project. Yeah, Yeah, right. You do have to like. You've got to take decompression because the thing, and we'd probably talk about this in the class. The thing we don't want to talk about. I mean, the psychological toll that this is going to take on a person to put yourself so immersively into these different characters who have these so much baggage. You know, obviously, as a person, you're dealing with your own personal baggage, and then to add that on top of it. I mean, you have to have that. I think break to really get back to ground. You know, ground zero, who you are before you can really. dive into and fully dive because I don't think you could fully dive into another character if you're still immersed in this one right. plus your personal life. Well, I mean, finding yourself in the middle yeah. would be nigh impossible, it yeah. would seem. Yeah. Well, Kate Winslet uh, did an interview right after uh, Mayor of Town wrapped up really this year uh, with The Ringer. Um, and it's it's one of the better like actor opening up about their process interviews that I've heard because that shit can go 
mm-hmm. skew really kind of yeah. Uh, but but I, I really appreciate what she had to say. But she she did talk about like you know having her own grief. You know it's, that's so much a character about like losing family members and like and deal, carrying other people's grief, right? Because it's a you know homicide detective character. And, and she talked about like coming away from that, like you know watching the show, like it's still kind of hitting her, even though it's been like a year and a half uh, or two, you know, because they had a long post-production because of covid but they shot prior to that so just kind of talking about like spending so much time basically just being sad and like using her own you know teasing out and she i I appreciate the ways in which she would like allude to her personal life while like very clearly having a boundary about what she doesn't talk about Mm -hmm. Uh, and just sort of you know alluding to yeah of course you you use what works in your own life but yeah you you can lose yourself in that and like sort of finding uh, uh, the voice. Uh, Lewis, in an interview with Oprah for Lincoln, did talk about, like, that's, that's part of the process. And uh, she, she kind of, like, telegraphed the process for him, and he got, very, he got very delighted. They were... It was cute. They were really vibing with each other in a way that's cute. But, like, he, he talked about, you know, I just tried to find... You find the voice, and you hear it in your head, and then you try to make it real. So you, you try to find who is this person so much that you can in, invite this... Th- this secondary uh, ride along in your personality. And that's, yeah, if you were doing it that kind of way, it seems difficult. Uh, it seems hard. But I, I also think, you know, there, there is a, the losing weight way of doing this. And then there is the just trying to treat your character like a real person way of doing this. And and for all of the bells and whistles that Day Lewis has in his process, it does seem to skew closer to that, right? It isn't just about, you know, almost getting hypothermia and, and crawling inside of a horse carcass. It's, it's about something else. It's about what kind of person stays up till three in the morning with a needle and thread, even though their thumb is bleeding. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, I under, you know, I don't know. Those things are right on the border of each other, but for whatever reason, one definitely like clearly and almost like self-evidently seems different to me. And I don't, I don't does that register with either of you? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think the other thing, and we're just kind of, I think, hitting around it, but and probably the most obvious thing is, I, I, he just has it, right? I mean, there's that kind of mm-hmm. unteachable thing that we talk about with movie stars in particular, I think, that raw magnetism uh, and commanding the screen, and, and he really does have it, where I think a lot of other uh, actors who try to follow in that, you know, I think Ed Norton, or Jared Leto is probably the best example, he's the most sure. contemporary uh, and Leto's fine. You know, he's a good actor right. mm-hmm. in the yeah. right roles, but he just doesn't have that, that qual. you know, he doesn't have those qualities. And there's just something I think about Lewis or, and the great actors, right? Yeah. <laughs> there, there's something about Leto that's always there. It's always a Jared Leto performance. Yep. E- even when it's a very good one. I mean, Dallas Fires the sur- Club is a very on the good performance, yeah. you know, maybe in terms of the casting choice, we can get back in that debate and I don't think we need to right now, but... Yeah. That being said, it's a, it's a good performance, but it's absolutely a Jared Leto performance. Yeah, and those Daniel Day Lewis performances, they're Daniel Day Lewis performances because he is unrecognizable. The, Reynolds Woodcock is nowhere near Daniel Plainview, which is nowhere near Bill the Butcher, which is nowhere near Abraham you know, Lincoln, which is nowhere near Pequot. Is that what his name is? That's not his name. Hawkeye. Isn't it? Hawkeye. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Or uh, the love interest for Winona Ryder in Age of Innocence. Yeah. I mean, they, those characters the are so, yeah. so far from each other. There's a really great, uh, somebody, you know, clipped together all of his accents, right? Mm-hmm. And just, uh, you know, picked a monologue basically from each performance. And, and it really is striking to like stack them up side by side. 
to hear, especially, you know, knowing where, you know, knowing he's uh, an Ireland native, but, you know, spent a lot of his adult life in London, like knowing what he actually sounds like. And, and you can hear the dude that's still in there, right? Like you hear Daniel Day-Lewis if you're listening for it, but you, you got to listen for it. You got to look for it. Because, man, when he's talking about uh, his love-hate relationship with uh, Liam Neeson's character in Gangs of New York, and he's monologuing to this dude about murdering his father, you believe it. Mm-hmm. You believe this guy was so mad that he couldn't look this guy in the eye when he thought he was going to kill him that he plucked his own eye out because this priest like put the fear of God in him. And I'm yeah, I'm sitting there like watching this clip going, God, I forgot how good this performance is because mm-hmm. uh, the movie I think is deeply overrated, but also just going, I can't, I, I believe it. I would believe if you told me Daniel Day-Lewis cut his eye out. I would believe you. Yeah. I don't think he would. I don't think he's that kind of guy. Well, he did spend six months cutting men's eyes out uh, to prepare. <laughs> oh, to prepare. Well, there you go. Yeah. I'm sure he did actually learn to be a butcher. And sent him to his castmates. I, I guarantee you he spent time in a butcher shop. There's no way he didn't. Oh, right? absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 100%. Um, th- I guess this is a good time to pivot over to the kind of interesting uh, tidbit on this film, that there is no director of photography, which you could very easily make an auteur argument and go, oh, oh well, you know. P.T. was his own uh, DP on that film. He wasn't. He just, he worked with some folks and he mm-hmm. worked with a lot. He knew he could save money on not hiring a DP. He's got a track record where the producer is going to let him get away with not having somebody in charge of the picture. And he trusts his team. You know, mm-hmm. he didn't really storyboard yeah. anything because, and again, I think this like shoots a big hole in auteur theory right here. He didn't storyboard because he wanted to collaborate. He didn't want to come to set with preconceived notions about what every scene should look like. They'd block the scene out real quick. And then they they would get together with you know the gaffers and you know all these the the camera op and you know just sort of the technical people who know a lot about this shit but don't normally get to make these decisions and they just yeah they would kind of collaborate on what the scene should look like and I, I just think that's really interesting. I think the other wrench and just because I, I I think with that segue I think Daniel Day is the other wrench right I mean right. when you talk about auteur theory yeah it's really easy to be like to wrap up in that and, and I always you know psycho is a great example of this i think where obviously hitch obvi- has a lot of influence on what's happening but the, those famous you know the violins over the shower i mean that was herman's idea yeah bernard herman yeah. yeah and that drastically impacts that movie and how it how it relates to an audience and i think what daniel day does on screen the decisions he makes the decisions vicky cripps makes and and uh, leslie manville make also impact how those scenes play out and what's on screen and how audiences read into it and the analysis there. And I think that's the other major wrench with the auteur theory. Yeah. I mean, Anderson's all but called him a co-writer, right? Like it's a, you know, he, he gets the only credit, but like he, he said like they, they would just call and talk on the phone and that, that they kind of workshopped who Reynolds was as a character. Woodcock was a joke, uh, name is just like a placeholder joke name mm-hmm. that Lewis came up with, and they, it never made them. It never stopped making them laugh. It's a good name, though. It's, it's good. So name. good. It's, it's a great. Name. It's very funny, but yeah, it's it such is. a pretentious name, right? Yes, yes. dude. <laughs> it is. <laughs> Reynolds Woodcock, <laughs> the House of Woodcock. You will no longer be dressed by the House of Woodcock. Uh, <laughs> God. <sighs> We get the dress. Get, God, we got. I can't wait for us <laughs> to get it. to class and aesthetics with this movie. Uh, oh yeah, but yeah, like he totally is. You're right. Like other than the the collaborative stuff with the the, the picture, Day Lewis is there from ground zero, right? And mm-hmm. like you said, he he took it upon himself to like you know create that that friendship with Leslie Manville because you know he because they don't they weren't going to do rehearsals. That's not really part of their process as a you know star director. They don't really do that when they work together. So I just yeah I think that 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 stuff's really interesting just the the ways in which it, 
even at this level, filmmaking, you get to be reminded that it is always a team effort, which, you know, it's very easy to lose sight of that. Yeah, but and I think you could, and this is going to be based mostly on you know secondhand accounts and what I know of his movies. But I think you could still, you know, we talk about a tourism, we talk about that kind of invisible thread, that that thematic thread that unites well, all the sort work, of right? Like a phantom thread. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, going back, we already kind of talked about the difficult men in mm. his movies, right? Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and these themes he kind of does keep going back to as a filmmaker, and, and so I think you could outline the auteur theory there with him but you're right I, I think there's so much that does occur that that throws a wrench in it i mean johnny greenwood has done how many scores for him like a ton mm-hmm. a huge colla- like the the big collaborative process like I, I i didn't internalize enough uh but it, that dga interview i, I name checked earlier they, they get into like what him and greenwood's process is and it basically it's workshopping it so they're not embarrassed to present it to the london philharmonic but it, it is kind of like a much scrappier approach to scoring than than is typical mm-hmm. uh, and that i think i mean what i like 60 70 percent of this film has score in it mm-hmm. uh, it, it is so like much a part of this movie's dna yeah it would not be the same movie without it yeah well let's go ahead and move to class a little bit because I think this movie is though uh a representation of a level of society which very few of us have any access to. Mm-hmm. It uh very much does seem to have a view from below that is in some senses we center Alma from the beginning. Yeah, right? center, we center Alma, who is you know she's, she's cafe worker. She's telling the story. Mm-hmm. That's, that's yeah. how we open the movie, right? But you're, yeah, she's a waitress, and she's being an used, immigrant. Yeah, and an immigrant, and she's being used, you know, as just you know the flavor of the month or whatever by Woodcock, and then she finds a way to find her own power. But I also think about the other seamstresses. There's the representation of their work as models and being mistreated by Woodcock or uh, having to stay up all night to fix a dress that he you know, messes up mm-hmm. because he passes out. But people, we get enough uh, little glimpses here and there that much, you know, like we're talking about our tour theory, that Reynolds does kind of view these women as collaborators, mm-hmm. right? Like he yeah. greets them by name yeah. at the door every morning like they're the team. They they make the thing work right, and he entrusts them to complete the projects and yeah. A, and yet there is definitely still a, a hierarchy enforced by class going on, right? Mm-hmm. But and but the way in which they take up the slack when he well falls down the job quite literally, yeah, right. Uh, and, and the way in which she's able to usurp some authority and uh, insists upon it, and, insists upon it, and mm-hmm. and just will not give up and gets it uh, is interesting. I don't know. I don't know if we do more Marxist critique than that, but I. I Maybe we'll just talk about the relationship and see where that takes us, right? Because that might get us back into class. We could do a couple of things. But I, I think it's interesting that, you know, when she, she Alma comes to Cyril with, like, this idea of a, a, a night of relaxation she has in mind for Reynolds. And she's like, don't do it. Absolutely That's not. Bad don't idea. throw off his routine. He does not like surprises. She's like, you, and it, it is one of those moments where she's like, don't backseat drive me. Like, do not tell me how to be in this relationship. I'm not... I'm not the same kind of chick that you've had in here before. And by this point in the movie, like Cyril is mostly on her side. Mm-hmm. They still butt yeah. heads a little bit, but like pretty early on, uh, Cyril makes a comment to him where where she's like, "You got to be nice to this one." And I like her. Uh, I, I think she is your your equal in every way. So you you better respect her. And it's it's kind of an interesting moment between the two of them. And yet Cyril is still like, "I'm the boss here." I she she's like simultaneously. Trying to manage Reynolds and trying to manage Alma's expectations of Reynolds, while at the same time sort of interviewing Alma for her job. 
in, in a way that's like it makes their their dynamic super interesting and kind of terse in a weird way. Mm-hmm. But they they like each other. It, but th- there is definitely a jockeying for dominance as mm-hmm. who who is the woman that is the boss of Reynolds' life because he clearly needs somebody to take care of him. <laughs> Who's his new mother? Bingo. I mean, that truly is what it is. Well, I mean, the Oedipal part of it, it, yeah. it comes in at that point, yeah. right? And I guess that's where we can kind of move ourselves over into the twist and the kink involved. Yeah, let's jump around a lot. I mean, uh, I think that's helpful with this movie, honestly. And so the the... At one point, Alma poisons Woodcock with mushrooms from the forest. Which is why he falls down on the job. Which is why, yeah, he passes out and he's just, you know, he's feverish and sick for about a day and then he's fine, but she takes care of him throughout that time and and he solidifies the relationship to such an extent that he proposes immediately upon his recovery. Two questions. Mm-hmm. Number one. That's not the twist, but go That's on. That's not the twist, but I, th- I think there's some table setting. Number one, we've already at this point in the movie, it's been established that after Reynolds has a big job, he kind of falls into a depression. So mm-hmm. it, it is. it does not seem to be insinuated that this means the poisoning has been going on for a long time. It, it is, as we are told, if we, we can take what Alma tells us at face value, until she poisons him the first time that we see... This is just like he's sort of a you know he he has some emotional difficulties with his process whatever it is that just kind of he crashes a- after he's done and yeah. it, that seems to be right that doesn't seem like we're being there's no information being left out right I, I mean don't think that's so. the whole like that's kind of the whole setup for the movie right I mean yeah. he's just finishing this job at the beginning Cyril asks him hey go to the country for the weekend yeah. you know because right? his girls. cycle is meet a girl do the thing break up with a girl. Go to the country. Repeat. It's yep. kind of what we're presuming is happening. It's the plot of Mother. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that sort of is the the framework that we're presented with. It, it, it is interesting though that yeah, there's sort of this Munchausen by Munchausen by proxy thing going on, where Alma like really takes to being his caretaker because it is the only time he puts his walls down. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is interesting that she's like, all right, if that's the way you're going to be, I'm going to force you to acknowledge that you love me. Which, as you said, Dustin, he does. It is weird though that it takes. Being afraid he's going to lose her to make him appreciate her, of course. Yeah, of pretty course, pretty yeah. classic dude stuff right there. Dudes do rock, as yeah. we all know. Yeah. So the big twist is that he is in on it and knows it at some point. Yeah. They're at the end of the film, so the, all, the, the, the penultimate sequence of the film is her making him an omelet with the mushrooms again. Uh, after a long speech of how he cannot stand living with this woman, what have I done? I've made a terrible mistake marrying her. And she is not just grinding up some mushrooms to throw in his tea. She is cutting up huge, enormous chunks of the poisonous mushrooms to put in an omelet. And I watched this in a That she horror. made with butter. And Reynolds does, does not, not like, like butter. Hates butter. She yeah. used extra butter. Yeah. That was a big old European chunk of butter. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah was it was a lot. And so she makes this thing, and he begins to eat it and then she says and like she's like conf- I, th- I think she's killing him she's confessing I want to see you on your back you know suffering or whatever yeah here, here of- it is she says I want you flat on your back helpless tender open with only me to help and then I want you strong again you're not going to die kiss me my dear before I'm sick which is when I was screaming at my TV. Yeah. I, just, I couldn't believe Ooh, and they kiss, and the light comes in. Ooh, I got so excited. The light comes in between their faces, and damn it, it's one of the prettiest scenes I've ever seen in a movie. Ugh, what a film. And, yeah, so he's into it. It is It is the punch-struck love thing, right? You're so pretty, I want squ- uh, to hit you in the face with a hammer. Yeah. Uh, you're so cute, I want to eat your face. Like, yeah, it's that same exact thing, right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. 
I love it. Uh, yeah, it, it is it is bizarre and surprising. Um, and I mean, there is this Oedipal thing. This distance with mother and wishing to be taken care of is some form uh, or some formative idea in his uh, psychosexual makeup, mm-hmm. uh, whatever it happens to be. And Alma is able to figure that out and tap into that. And it does d- evolve into a relationship that w- works, I-, I say, with question marks. Because, I mean, the question of consent comes to mind, especially with the initial T-doctoring. Let's be clear, no matter how mean your partner is, it's probably not okay to poison them, unless, you know, they're slowly murdering you, in which case, well, poison them. I'm not your boss. But I guess if they like to be poisoned a little, and you're both in on it, I mean, that's that seems to be fine. Yeah. But I don't... It's, it's like the Grateful Dead dosing the coffee with LSD at a party. I mean, it's fine. I don't care if anybody does that or not, but you can't do it without telling somebody. That's not okay. Yeah. Climax. Yeah, climax. Yeah, bingo. Yeah, you can't uh, wormwood. You can't just go around giving people uh, psychoactive drugs and not telling them. That's yeah, rude. That this yes, it is. It is definitely not what we do, <laughs> to here. say the least. Uh, we don't do that in the house, of Woodcock. Uh, except when we do. The the connection between the mom is like made explicit too, right? Mm-hmm. Like in the first poisoning, um, we see this really cool. And I've not seen the Hitchcock film Rebecca, but obviously, you know, very, the whole cast and crew very open about that as an influence, which, you know, I mean, uh, our very first movie we talked about, Assault on Precinct 13, very upfront about it being uh, a remake of Rio, Rio Bravo. Bravo. Like right. that's some just sometimes that's how movie making works. If you don't if you don't make a one to one remake, you can just kind of make it an homage to a movie and it's not a big deal. But I, I know there's some ghost imagery in that film and we get this sort of Alma and the specter of uh Mama Woodcock, like, kind of overlapping, and mm-hmm. it's an interesting moment that, like, both situates Alma, like, as her... Oh, good lord, I just keep getting too excited. I'm hitting the mic stand. <laughs> it situates Alma, like, as her own person, as her own entity, not as his mommy wife, and yet the connection is undeniable. Right. Right, and it is interesting for the movie to, like, I let you draw your own conclusions, but try to, like, present you with all the information about these characters in as, like, unobtrusive a way as possible. Yeah. What do we think? Do uh, I mean, is it a healthy relationship? I, I don't know, honestly. I don't know if it doesn't become one. I don't think it starts out as one. Once you're on equal footing, it's somewhat healthier, is what you're Healthier, thinking. I would give it that. I it's would, healthier than blind poisoning. Blind poisoning or just the awful abuse. He, he is correct. nasty. Yes, yeah, he is yeah. nasty to her, too. Yeah, yeah. The and, butter scene, he's just like, dude, calm down. Or, he, or she brings the tea, and he doesn't want the tea. Uh, the, yeah, Did the I ask tea for is tea? gone, but the distraction is still in here with me. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. right. Oh, my God. There's that great moment uh, when they're on the, I, I think they're on their honeymoon, and they're eating the toast on the balcony, and he's immediately regretting the sound design the of marriage. the toast. Is you can so tell good. he's immediately regretting what he's done. Biting his teeth and yeah. his molars into shreds. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, I mean, I mean, this goes back to the, where we opened this show, is that... He's a terrible person in a lot of regard. Presented as, you know. And, and so yeah, I, I yeah, this is a very complex relationship. Uh, yes, it's troubling. And I and I think the complexity is is a lot of the value in this film. Mm-hmm. Is that yes, he is a terrible person. She does genuinely love him and and sees him for all of that which he is. Yeah. But also Alma is that's monstrous. Well, you know, Alma is not unambitious. Right? Like yeah. she sees Reynolds' value as somebody who can improve her station in life, which how how could she not? I mean, mm-hmm. it is just, it's on its face all there. 
and it kind of is the unspoken like thing of their relationship. And she does sort of assert herself in a way that like makes him confront that a little bit, right? She's I'm not just the waitress you picked up. Like I have my own opinions, I have my own taste, and I'm not going to change my taste. Like the band I like is cool, and you're not going to convince me otherwise just because I don't know you have a cool hair routine, dipshit. Like it is so much like. I don't know. It is a guy that's been in LA and heard people complain about their relationships for 20 years, right? Like it is some pretty standard modern relationship drama uh, transposed to this, this costume period piece. I want to go dancing. I don't want to go dancing. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah. yeah. The, and that callback is great that he actually did go back and danced with her. Cause I thought he went back and just drug her out of that place, you know, with the way it was uh, cut the first time through. Yeah. And so, but that's interesting because she refuses to let him rule her in that way. And he goes ahead and comes along. And so there, there, there's a way in which that give there, there, there's a growth and development in that relationship that I do think is not wholesome. I wouldn't say, but there's a there's a maturation. Yeah, it, it, there's, there's something somewhat heartwarming in all of that. Reynolds is finally accepting that she wants to get in trouble. That's that's part of the deal. Yeah, she, I'm trying to piss you off, idiot. <laughs> yeah, because you're too set in your ways, and like mm-hmm. he slowly but surely like sees the value in that, which I think is sweet. There's something to that. Yeah, yeah. Again, I'm not sure quite wholesome is the right word I want to use, but there's 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 something warming about all of that. Look, it's. The, the last complicated one of the one of the last complicated relationship movies we talked about was Midsummer, and clearly, you know, worked out better. Uh, <laughs> yes. Who is who's the bigger schmuck uh, between um, Reynolds and uh, what's his doodle? What's his doodle? What's his yeah, doodle? Jack Rayner. I can't think of a character name. Yeah, he's. Uh, yeah, I think he's probably the bigger schmuck for sure. Um, uh, there's this interesting stuff with uh, Barbara, uh, the woman uh, that's like one of Reynolds' main benefactors. Uh, and we've kind of we've alluded to the you'll no longer be dressed, but th- this this is the lead up mm-hmm. to that, right? Uh, this is a really interesting sequence of the movie because it focuses a lot on aesthetics. Like it's it's right after the shortly after you know the I have my own taste. Uh, you just have enough to get into trouble. Blah blah blah. It comes after this, right? And they this thing that really bonds the two of them is the respect for what they're doing Mm -hmm. and it frustrates both of them that barbara can't see herself as beautiful in this dress like she there's a lot of barbara being like oh i'm sorry i'm i'm what you have to work with i'm ruining your dress and they're both like are like reynolds and Alm like keep looking at each other during the scene like um and it, it is interesting that like when she gets drunk at this wedding and passes out they are not having it. it is the last straw and it is so interesting that like Despite this point in the film, Reynolds like still being a huge jerk, Alma like feels enough independence that she like asserts herself as a part of this house and like is going to use the power that that gives her to be uh, talk to a rich person like they need to be talked to. It's very interesting uh, the the way in which she like starts to see this new life that is that's being presented to her. And it seems to be something that Reynolds is not going to do on his own. Yeah, no, yeah he, he gives her, can't he, deal with conflict. Gives if, her the gives him the nudge to be assertive and defend his product in it, that sense. It, it feels like this real kind of id super ego mashup, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. She's she allows this kind of anarchy and and he kind of accepts that to do something he wouldn't normally do and I think finds some sort of normalcy and joy in that that he hasn't experienced before. Yeah. It's a thrill. It's something that, you know, we've... 
upstairs downstairs dramas are full of and I'm, i think rules of the game's probably got a little bit of this i know we talked about that a while ago now but um this sort of love in high society very much being uh a thing of games and rules and this this uh you know working class person entering this this atmosphere and going no it's not it, it's it's love period like you don't you can't like codify it you can't put rules around who eat, who eats breakfast when and how loudly like that's cohabitation is is a, a thorny thicket and that is what it is it is uh, you know it, it's not something that's not explored in storytelling all the time but it's it's really interesting how it's done here and i, I think like kind of the last few points we've touched on all sort of circle back to like how alma as the only uh, person has ever had to work for a living <laughs> uh is and again of course that's taking something away from cyril and reynolds who you know have to keep working or they don't get to stay in that big house probably right um it it is interesting how like just you know being an outsider allows her to sort of blow up everybody's preconceived notions about what fashion is and uh it's interesting that we never get confirmation that Alma's taste is the taste of the time, but we do know that Reynolds' taste is on the way out. And yes. he's mad yeah. about chic. <laughs> Dirty little word. <laughs> what does that even mean? Whoever said it should be spanked. That's <laughs> oh, so funny. He's so hoity-toity. It's such a funny accent. It oh, really it is. is. It's good. It's, it's good. It's a delightful voice. All righty. Well, let's get to a point in rendering a verdict on this film. Uh, there's a lot more that can be said, I'm sure. There's a lot more that are think pieces and whatnot out there to be found. But uh, where do we finally fall? Shelf or trash with Phantom Thread? I go to you first. Dalton, what do you say? Uh, I mean, look, it's obvious, but how can I not? We are going to shelf this one. It, it is... You know, it's it's one of those pieces of craft that is about making stuff without being obnoxious about it. it it's about the ways we hide our, our personal foibles and triumphs in the things that we present to people. I mean, look, you go listen to the last 10 years of us talking in mics. I'm sure you'll find us alluding to all manner of things. Uh, and that's what I like about Phantom Threat. It is there as a personal document that is also like a, you know, a, a pretty tremendous artistic triumph while also, you know, being a product that you know, generated clicks and articles and awards and blah, blah, blah. It's interesting from that historical point of view. It's interesting as you know, maybe one of the last kind of movies like this we'll ever have. Uh, yeah, it's absolutely shelfable. I can't wait to watch it again. I've, I've watched clips of it constantly since we you know, I watched it for the show. Very good, very good. What do you say, Arthur? Yeah, this was uh, easy shell for me. Uh, I think I bought it as soon as it was released on home media. Uh, so it, that has not changed. It's a shelfer for me. It's as good as Vertigo. Shelf. There you have there it. There you have it. Final word. Put that on the pull that quote. I wonder what Anderson's next movie is going to be. I'm sure. Oh, it's that soggy the bottom. Soggy bottom. I don't know about this. Well, it's what happens when you have a daughter who is in her two to three years of age. <laughs> Did I don't Dustin? Don't put that juju on me. Oh, <laughs> I don't have children for a reason, man. Uh, so I can keep making dresses. Uh, in my attic. In your attic. Soggy Bottom is an upcoming American drama film written and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. It follows a high school student becoming an actor in the 70s. The film stars Bradley Cooper, Cooper Hoffman, Elena Hamm, Skylar Gisondo, and Benny Safdie. It is oh. scheduled to be released on November 26, 2021. Huh. Well. Bradley Cooper as a film director and producer. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Benny Safdie is a politician running for office. Incredible. Love that, too. That's great. Love that. MGM acquired distribution rights to the film from Focus, so yeah, that's what there we have. To look, that's what we have to look forward to. From yeah, Paul. I think there's been a few set photos. Oh, Sounds okay. like maybe his uh, Oscar run again. Yeah, very much. You know, it's a movie about the movies, and it's got the mileage already with you know, yeah, the cast and yeah, yep. 
uh, I mean, he's, yeah, he's got another heralded director in there in the cast. Wow. Is that B Coops? It sure is. That looks like a guy in the 70s, that's oh for sure. Oh, my. Yeah. Uh, listener, we're looking at some some very interesting white linen clothing on Bradley Cooper. He definitely looks like a cult leader in this, which, you know, you, you tell me the difference between a, a film director and a cult leader. I'll let you be the judge of that, listener. I, I don't have yeah, yeah, you, I know. You you looked at me like, what is he talking about? Then you looked away and looked back like, uh-oh. <laughs> Does he have a point? <laughs> I, I think he might. Um, uh, so it's on the shelf for you, I assume. Uh, yes, it is. Um, so uh, if you have a point that you would like to make to us, you can do it via social media. Dalton, tell them where that all is. Uh, yeah, we're on Twitter at Good Trash Media. Uh, that's really the only thing you need to know about social media-wise, truly. Uh, we're on the other platforms, but... Who needs them? Uh, we're 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 always keeping you up to date on you know new links uh, for uh, you know these these episodes as they drop uh, stuff that we're appearing on. I was just uh, as you're hearing this, it's probably been about a month ago now, but I was on uh, Caleb Masters, our, our old friend and former co-host. Uh, he's got his show, The Cinematic Schematic. I went on there with uh, some other co guest hosts and talked the Suicide Squad, and it was. I was fine. I, I said the typical things you would expect me to talk about. I talked about how it's a movie about uh, mercenaries hired by the U.S. government to intervene in South America. It was that kind of a show. Um, but yeah, so we'll also be making sure we share links to you know friends our show. Friends, oh, good Lord. Arthur's been doing this last couple of weeks. I'm totally tripped up. Me sharing links to shows our friends make, like The Wheel of Randy with Dan Wade. Uh, where he takes uh, a guest through the wonderful world of Randy Newman's uh, musicography. Uh, you can also listen. I that's the appropriate face to make at musicography. <laughs> you can also listen to the Praise Down with Ethan Alex, a show that's sometimes about music, sometimes about media in general, but almost always about American Christianity and its nebulous role in the modern world. Uh, that's social media. Uh, we rate, review, subscribe on the the podcatcher of your choice. We're on everything but Spotify, and maybe someday. Uh, that's it. Yeah, that's it for right now. Okay. Well, Arthur, um, reveal the next entry in the marathon, and let's see if we can guess it. Ooh. I will as soon as you pick one of these cards. I pick. Oh, that Dustin one. gets to pick this time. This one. That one right there. That's the very one I picked. Let's see what we're doing. I, f- I forgot that there was there was a whole picking element to this. All right. Next week. We are going to be watching a remake from a legacy director. Uh huh. As we take on Sofia Coppola's *The Beguiled*. Oh hell yeah, dude! Excellent, excellent. I love that movie. It's so good. Okay, so what we have to go on as far as clues. All right, yeah. It's, oh, it's clue. The, it's clue. The, the clue roundup. Um, what are the similarities we have between *Beguiled* and *Phantom Thread*? Maybe Period pieces. Rebecca remake. So *Beguiled* remake. Uh, the Beguiled. Okay, yeah, so we got remake, we've got period piece, um, we've got movies about the nature of relationships between men and women. Shut up in a large estate, kind of... Sort of pseudo-ghost stories? Gothic-y kind of things, yeah. Rich people. Hmm, hmm, hmm. I don't know that we have enough to go on just yet. I don't know either. I Obviously, don't know. my original theory is completely out. Uh, yeah. I, I think that's gone. It'll take the third movie being a period piece and or a remake to help us really solidify things. Dustin, uh, have you seen uh, The Beguiled? Either I have. One? I've seen the new one. I have not seen the old one. Um, Arthur, what about you? I have seen the new one. Okay. I have seen neither and hope to watch both between now and next time you hear our voices. I understand the Clint one is quite different. That's what I've heard as well. I'll probably watch the new one first and, you know, if I have time. 
But uh, well, that would be the ideal scenario is that you would watch the one for the show, <laughs> and then if you have time, well, and of course, the real way to do it would Thank be you, to Arthur. to watch the first one first to really make sure I have to watch them both. <laughs> But yes, you're absolutely. I'm doing the homework. <laughs> Put yourself behind the rock there, yeah. huh? Yeah. I'm going to do the homework first, and then think about maybe doing the extra credit. Uh, yeah. I look forward to talking about uh, Colin Farrell and uh, his harem of women who are going to end up murdering him, probably. Uh, all right. Well, you keep watching, and we'll keep talking, and we'll see you all next time. Uh,